To get started with today's session, um, I should uh, welcome our guest, uh, Dr. Casey Reynolds. Uh, he's with the uh, Turfgrass Producers International. Uh, myself and my colleagues here, Dr. Bowling and Dr. Sorokin, have known Casey for a long time. And Casey, welcome to Turf Tuesdays. Thank you. <clears throat> Happy to be here. Yeah, I know with today's session, we've, you know, we want to focus a lot on the saw checkoff, but I think to before we can really have a meaningful dialogue about that, it's probably pretty important we provide a little bit of context um, just to kind of get to that point. You know, uh, John and Becky and I, we've known you for a long time, but for many of our uh, folks that are listening today, can you give a little background about kind of who you are and and, and what you do? Yeah, sure thing. Um, so I graduated from North Carolina State University um, with my PhD in turf grass science. I uh, spent about 10 years there as a researcher, and then I moved to Texas A&M, where I was there for about four years as a faculty member. And in 2017, I joined Turfgrass Producers International, which is a trade association that represents seed and sod farmers from all over the world. Uh, we've got members in, you know, 40-something states and probably 20 or more international countries. And uh, we promote natural grass. We're farmers at heart. Uh, our members produce the seed, the sod, the sprigs that, that landscapers and golf courses and ball fields use worldwide. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's been interesting with the, at least in our state, with the sod industry, particularly this year, you know, we had pretty extensive winter kill of warm season grass throughout much of Tennessee. And uh, I, I was not on a golf course property this spring that did not resod some area of the golf course in some capacity. And uh, I think the same would be true with uh, sports fields and probably to a lesser extent lawns, but um I don't know, is that, you know, in your your work with TPI, did you see uh, maybe an uptick in the sod business with the, the winter that was in 2023? Um, I personally did not. I think the reason for that is because housing is still strong. You know, most U.S. sod farmers, I think, would tell you that housing is what pays the bills. You know, when housing is strong, um, they might not even notice little things like you're saying where they have to replace here and there for winter kill. But if housing wasn't strong, you know, it probably would have hit their books more, a little more noticeably. Um, but the reality is housing is strong right now. And uh, that that's, that's what, you know, drives the ship for our industry. And for our, you know, for our side, um, most of our growers here in Tennessee, they grow, um, yeah, they grow a lot of warm season grass, principally, you know, hybrid Bermuda grass and zoysia, uh, as well as some tall fescue. And I know I was out uh, at one of our sod producer meetings in August. And, you know, I asked a question about inventory um, and, and what sod inventory in the state really looked like. And I was pretty surprised by the answer that, um, you know, most of our growers across Tennessee had commented that inventory was just now in August kind of back to level where we were just okay on the warm season turf grass front. Um, some of that was, was, you know, winter loss themselves, maybe from late season cuttings or late season plantings in a, in a pretty harsh winter in 23. Um, but as a group, they commented that while they were just back to level, it wouldn't take a real big push for some of that warm season inventory to, to go back down again. And there'd be um, maybe a little bit of scarcity which I thought oh, yeah. was interesting. And they also commented that they felt that 
you know, some of the, you know, everything's costing more in the modern world that, you know, the pricing of sod in 2024 might even tick up with all the, you know, increases in fuel costs and trucking costs and whatnot. And it's, uh, it's certainly a more expensive endeavor now than it was a few years ago. Yeah, no doubt about it. Um, labor's short, truck drivers are short, um, you know, a lot of the things that landscapers are dealing with, you know, we're also dealing with from an agricultural perspective. Um, there are parts of the country, I've talked to farmers that have run out of sod. Like they say, I saw my last truck ship out of the farm two weeks ago and hadn't sold one since, <laughs> you know? So if, um, if your guys and gals have good inventory, God bless them. Um, cause there are other parts of the country where it's, it's much shorter than that. Yeah, I know. Uh, one of the things that our, our producers like to talk about is they never want to see sod have a birthday. They want, yeah. to, <laughs> they want to plant it, grow it, harvest it, move it out the door and plant it again, which I, yeah. I've always liked. Um, I've always liked that. Uh, I don't know if that's a metaphor or what, but. Yeah, well, in your part of the country, you can do that. I mean, if you go to New Jersey, Michigan, I mean, I don't know that they can do that. If you go to Florida, I mean, they may harvest two, three times a year. So, but in mid Tennessee, like you guys and gals are at, I mean, that, that seems perfectly reasonable. Yeah. So, Casey, you know, you mentioned in your, your, you know, introductory remarks there that, you know, TPI represents sod and seed. And, you know, at this point in the season in Tennessee, we have a, we have a lot of uh, lawn care professionals who, who join us for these sessions, a lot of extension agents that are feeling calls this time of year about interceding, particularly uh, of tall fescue lawns, you know, the uh, kind of conventional workflow uh, in my time in Tennessee has been, we get into the fall of the year, there's, you know, lawns get aerated and then, you know, they kind of, they call it overseeded with tall fescue, but there's some tall fescue there. So it's really like an interseeding event. Can you speak at all about maybe the current status of the seed industry, uh, kind of where we're at seed inventory or you know, where are things headed with seed production, particularly with the tall fescues, because there's there's tremendous interest in the tall fescues. And I know Becky's been working on trying to put together some cultivar information for uh, end users in the state. Yeah, anecdotally, um, I think we've leveled off with seed production. And, and let me just preface this saying, I'm not the prime expert to answer that question about seed supply shortage surplus. But anecdotally, what I hear, uh, a couple of years ago, seed was really short, uh, wildfires in the Northwest, uh, drought in the Northwest. I think we're past that. We've somewhat leveled off. I even had a seed producer tell me last week that they're going into a surplus situation. Um, you know, this constant fear that there's a recession just around the corner, which we've been talking about for two years now that hadn't happened. Um, I don't know if that's showing up in the home loan market where people aren't maybe seeding as much, but, you know, just as recently as last week, I had a seed producer tell me they're in a surplus situation. So I, I don't have any indication that seed is going to be short. Uh, but as you know, it's a complex answer. I mean, I, is bluegrass short, fescue's not. I mean, those bent grass short, you, you know, those kinds of things, I don't really have, you know, any any light to shed on that. Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, there's just the interest kind of is always steady. I mean, Becky, I'm sure you've fielded plenty of calls and starting at Tennessee about tall fescue cultivars and what's the best fit for the state and 
you know, sometimes it's kind of hard to find, you can get a cultivar information, but it's hard to find that specific cultivar itself, right? Because things are often in blends or mixtures. Yeah, that can be challenging. And sometimes, you know, it's not the easiest, even on, on some of the packaging that we see to discern what varieties are in a particular blend. And, um, but, you know, certainly there's some, some wonderful improved varieties out there that give us really good options. And, um, so. Yeah, I'm doing my we best. We have a magazine. We, we produce this issue every July seed and vegetative stock. And I mean, I just grabbed it off my desk. Um, here's one producer saying perennial ryegrass and tall fescue, there's good supply because we've had good yields. Fine fescue demand has been really high, so that may be harder to get. Kentucky bluegrass, good yield, more seed on the market. So, I mean, yeah, just anecdotally picking out one seed producer in this magazine, that's that's the vibe I've been getting. Doing my best. Another one. Inventories in Oregon are at record high for perennial ryegrass and tall fescue. Well, that's good news for everybody. Yeah. That's good news for everybody. There's certainly been, I've fielded more calls about from the golf course industry about overseeding the ryegrass in the past year than maybe the previous 14 years at Tennessee combined. And you know, certainly in the in the COVID era, there's been an uptick in golf, more interest in golf, more money in the game. That could certainly be part of why there's renewed interest in overseeding. I'm not really sure, but it's good to know that the stocks are there. Yeah, yeah, it certainly sounds like it. I'm doing my, my best Tom samples today, though. I'm getting us way off topic for what we're here to actually talk about. We're, we're in this conversation about seed during a, a session about the sod checkoff, which, uh, Tom would be proud of me, but I'm going to bring it full circle back. So, so Casey, what is the sod checkoff? You know, I, 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 I've heard you talk about this in various settings, but I, my inclination is that most of the folks that are joining us today might not have ever heard about the sod checkoff and have, have an idea of, of what it is. So I guess, you know, start at the beginning and, and uh, I'm going to sit back and listen to you uh, describe it for our group. Okay. So, you know, I'd say back as far as the 1960s, um, farmers have looked around and they said, wow, you know, I'm selling cattle in Oregon or Texas or Florida or whatever, you know, pick a state. Um, and I can't necessarily pitch in enough money to promote beef nationally. But, you know, if we all pitched in, we could. <laughs> So back in the 60s, I believe, uh, beef, dairy, soybeans, maybe a little bit later than that, they went to the Department of Agriculture, excuse me, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, um, and essentially said, hey, we need to raise money to promote our agricultural products, and one farmer can't do it. Uh, and even if they could, is it fair if one farmer was promoting beef and another farmer was getting sales off of that beef? So that kind of born this idea about checkoffs. And one of the first ones to start uh, back in the day, you know, when it went up for a vote among the industry, you had to check a little box that says, you know, do you support this initiative? And you checked it. And just, you know, by happenstance, people started calling them checkoffs. But what they're really called are USDA research and promotion programs. And they've been around for whatever, 80 years now, maybe since the 60s. Um, 
And essentially what it is, is it's the United States Department of Agriculture worked through Congress to pass a law that lays out the legal framework for farmers to pool their resources and to promote their agricultural commodities. And since they've started, um, we're up to 22 checkoffs now at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And I'll just read through a few of them randomly. Beef, soybeans, uh, milk, you know, cotton. These are the ones that people think about, like when you're watching TV and you see the cotton ink commercials. Uh, when you see eat beef, it's what's for dinner or got milk. Like those are all things that got formed through checkoffs. And those are national, very impactful marketing campaigns that no single farmer could ever take on by themselves. Um, but for beef, for instance, when every farmer in the country pitches in $1 for every head of cow that cattle they sell, I mean, you end up raising $100 million, you know, or $80 million, an amount of money that you can actually do something with. And those early checkoffs, you had to go through Congress to get a law passed. I mean, the, an industry like us as sod. You literally had to go to Congress. You had to lobby your lawmakers to get a bill on the floor of the House, get it passed, send it over to the Senate, get it passed, send it to the president's desk to get it passed. Um, and it took years and years to do that. So back in 1996, Congress essentially said, you know what? We've got a U.S. Department of Agriculture for a reason. Let's let them handle checkoffs. So when the Farm Bill that year was passed, it contained legislation in it called the Agricultural Improvement and Reform Act of 1996, better known as the Freedom to Farm Act. And it contained legislation called the Commodity Promotion Research and Information Act. So when the Farm Bill passed in 1996, it delegated authority to the U.S. Department of Agriculture to conduct checkoffs. And since 1996, if an industry wants to contribute or create a checkoff, you no longer have to go through Congress. You go straight to the USDA. Uh, blueberries have done it, Christmas trees, honey, mangoes, peanuts, softwood lumber. You know, there's probably a dozen different industries that have gone to the USDA to create a checkoff. And um, that's what we're doing right now. Uh, so essentially, we've proposed a U.S. sod checkoff to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. It's under review. Uh, once it is posted for public comment, it'll be free for everyone to see, to go in, to provide comment on. But the general idea is the same idea that dairy and beef had 50 years ago, which is if we all contribute a little bit of money, we can protect and promote our industry. And, you know, it, you mentioned earlier, there's a, probably a lot of landscapers on this call. I mean, if you just Google the term, well, let's let's do it right now. I'm going to Google the term lawns are. So if we go to Google and we type in lawns are, the top hits are stupid, colonialism, bad, waste, bad for the environment, disaster, stupid, ugly. <laughs> You wow. know, this is what people think of our industry. They think we waste a lot of pesticides. We waste a lot of water. They think we really should just absolutely get rid of lawns and sports fields and golf courses altogether. Um, and we know that not to be the case. We know that there are benefits to having lawns and urban spaces like parks and golf courses and cemeteries, you know, that contribute positively to our urban and suburban environments. 
but there's just no money to tell that story. So if the sod checkoff were to pass, it would essentially raise, we think, you know, 14 or more million dollars a year to go out and to fund research so that universities can have monies to, to do local research projects to promote and protect their industry. It would also provide local and national marketing dollars that, in, that our industry could go out and talk about the good side of our industry. And the overarching objective of both of those would be to promote and to protect our industry. And right now, frankly, there's just no way to do that because no association or no individual state has the money or the will to, to go out and do that nationally. And our industry firmly believes that a checkoff is the only way to fill that need. Uh, a nationwide strategy for raising funds to promote research, excuse me, to raise research and promotion dollars at a meaningful level. So and that's kind of what got us to where we are today in a nutshell. So, so I have a question, you know, when it, you, you commented early, these things would go through the house and then go through the Senate and then through the president's office to pass. And I kind of understand the workflow there in that. Um, that would be really hard, I think, to do in the modern world if that was the, okay. the workflow today. How, you know, you said it's currently with USDA. It's going to open for public comment. Uh, you know, Becky and I in particular are pretty familiar with the the public comment period as it pertains to like herbicide re-registration and relabeling and what goes goes on in that world. So once the public comment period closes, like how does it pass? Like, is there a vote at USDA and they need like a majority of USDA people to say like, all right, this is a go or like, how does it work from there? Okay, so it, it's not a vote at USDA. Uh, the USDA tries to drill home with us and other checkoffs repeatedly that this is your industry's checkoff. Congress gave us authority to administer it, but it's your industry. Like you decide everything. You decide what's in it. You decide how the vote works. You decide what the rate is. You run it. There'll be a board of sod producers ultimately that run the checkoff if it were to pass. So it's not a USDA led initiative. I mean, we actually go to USDA and there is a rule at USDA that no taxpayer dollars can be used to fund checkoffs. Like the industry has to pay for it themselves. So I only say that to share that it really drives home the point that these are not USDA led programs. These are industry led programs. Now, to your question about the flow, uh, essentially an industry has to go to USDA and say, you know what, we've got this need for a checkoff. Um, we want to talk to y'all about proposing one. And in that 1996 Research Promotion and Commodity Act, there's rules. You know, there's a 50, 75 page handbook for what you got to do to pass a checkoff. The first thing you have to do is propose an industry analysis and justification. So this is what's the size of our industry? What are the threats to it? What's the value of it? How much market share could we lose if we don't promote our industry? How much market share could we gain if we do promote our industry? Um, you go through all of that. And then you write with an attorney what potentially the checkoff language would be. And then you submit that to USDA. And that's where we stand right now, Jim, is USDA has got that proposal in hand. They could approve it any day. And when they do, the very first step will be they'll open up something called the public comment period. 
that public comment period will be open for 60 days. And it's every person's right in the country to log on and provide public comment. So you as a professor could log on and say, I support this. Becky as a professor could log on and say, I hate this. <laughs> you know, landscapers can log on, golf course superintendents can log on. Sod producers are the ones that really need to log on and provide comment because they are the ones that vote on it. So after that 60 public, after that 60 day public comment period closes, the USDA will compile all those comments and they'll repost it with any edits that are made after that comment period. So if there is overwhelming support, for instance, that that board have a guaranteed seat from Florida, well, the USDA can make that change if our industry overwhelmingly supports it. And that's just an example, not that that would necessarily happen, but that's an example. They will repost that and then we all get to see it and they'll say, this appears to have enough support to go forth to a vote. So here's the voter registration date. And then they'll tell us how to go vote. And then they'll give us a window for voting. And then every sod producer in the country gets to cast a vote. And if it passes by a vote of 50% plus one among sod producers, it'll go to the next step, which is, okay, it has passed. Now it's time to form the board. Once that board is formed, those 13 or 14, 15 sod producers on that board, they will be tasked with starting the program. And then once the program starts, then there's a whole list of things that they have to do annually uh, at USDA so that USDA can make sure the program is running the way it should. So we're pretty early in the process. Um, we anticipate the public comment period opening pretty soon. And once it does, you'll see an announcement from us. We'll give everybody instruction on how to go on and do that. And then um, again, if there's support for it, the USDA will take it to the next step and sometime in the near future, we'll vote on it. And if it were to pass by 50% plus one vote, uh, one day in the next few years, we we might wake up and our industry might have a check off. And is the public comment period, I think Becky with EPA, those are 60, 90 days, right? But typically 60. Yeah, they can be like you can have some guidance, but the the benchmark is 60. Okay. And that's what we're anticipating, but you know, it may very well be 90. We'll we'll find out when it opens. But the benchmark, you're right, Jim, is 60. Yeah. So that I mean that'll be an important time, I think, to have people speak up in, in either direction to to you know steer the future of this forward. Uh um, yeah. you know, one of the things when you were sharing kind of how you got here. You said you you the first step was to do analysis of kind of the size and scope of the industry. And, you know, without getting too deep down the rabbit hole, I'm sure there had to be some things to you in doing that were that were surprising and like numbers that were maybe bigger than you expected. Was there any kind of broad brushstroke takeaways from when you did that that really yeah. kind of blew you away about about the sod industry as a whole? Yeah, I mean, I can tell you there's there weren't any real surprises from a sod perspective. You know, USDA, we keep they keep the, they have what's called an agricultural census where they do a census every year, every five years of farms all over the country. You know, no real surprises in the number of farms and acres that were reported. But real the really the surprising part, and I'd say that's relevant relevant to today's call, is there is no data 
on landscapes and golf courses and cemeteries and roadsides and, and parks. Um, we potentially are, if you count lawns, sports fields, you know, every grass place that our, you know, landscapers and golf course communities manage, um, we're potentially the third or fourth largest agricultural commodity in the country. Um, and we have no data on it. And you ask yourself, well, why is there no data on, on how big the economic impact of, of the lawn care market is? And the answer is, well, there's no money to do the research. <laughs> you know, like those studies are expensive. I mean, to go out and to do a research study to figure out that the landscape industry in the U.S. is a $40 billion industry. I mean, that's going to cost half a million or more dollars to do that work. And right now, as it stands today, there's just no pool of money to do that work. So if you're trying to work locally and you're trying to get people to understand how big of a footprint our industry has, we have no way to do that right now. So it's yeah. a great example of why we want a checkoff is we could fund that type of work. And then every lawn care operator in the country could go to their city council men and women and say, hey, lay off of me. You know, we contribute X amount of jobs and Y amount of value to this community and Z amount of environmental benefits. You know, we could fund research to show the benefits of lawns and golf courses and landscapes, whereas right now there's just no money to do that. So I think to answer your question, the surprising thing we came across was just the absolute lack of data in this topic that we really need to address as an industry if we want to move forward. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to hear that, you know, I'm taking back, I mean, I want to say we recently did this, but I'm getting old. This was like 10 years ago. Now we did one of these surveys at the state level and we were lucky enough, you know, to your point about expense, it was way more costly than I think John and myself and, and Brandon and Tom, when he was here, ever thought it would be um, to do it. And we generated some great data about the economic impact of turf grass as an industry in Tennessee. And, and to your point about the number of jobs uh, that were created. But when you read through the report, like one of the one of the number one takeaways from the people who participated in that and working with our agricultural economics department was they were unaware that they were part of the turf grass industry, right? We were we were sending this to people that had a lawn, had were landscapers just kind of in an industry where in the industry and in whatever you know pocket or corner you might be um and they were totally unaware that the turfgrass industry was something that they were a part of it was a it, it's oh, yeah. interesting to hear that the lack of data to to speak to size and scope is true at the national level as well and i think i mean you're in the dc circles more than any of the three of us here uh, I've heard chatter that there's an effort, I think, with the uh, U.S. Agricultural Statistics Service, maybe, to try to have a kind of turf grass survey as part of the farm bill. Is that right? Yeah. So we are promoting that in this year's farm bill cycle. The USDA's they have a group called NAS, which is National Agricultural Statistics Survey. And we've approached them about doing this study and they've said, sure, we're happy to do it. We've got the manpower and the skill set to do it. But again, it's not free. Like you can't just go to USDA and burden the taxpayer with conducting your industry study. You have to fund it. Um, and there's just no money. <laughs> 
you know, so we're trying to get it into the farm bill to get the farm bill to fund it. But, you know, who knows whether or not that'll happen. I mean, the general vibe, depending on who you talk to in which chamber and which side of the aisle is no more appropriations, no more spending money, you know, no more anything, um, which is certainly a political discussion more than a industry discussion. And we're at that, we're at the mercy of that. So until we go to USDA and say, hey, here's a check for a half million dollars to do this work. It's just not going to get done. So, I mean, is that, I mean, let's say, you know, we fast forward and it's 2026, not that that's a firm timeline, but just some point in the future and this saw check off, it becomes a thing, you know, it, it passes the vote. You said 50% plus one and the, the, the board that's administrating it, it's all in place. I mean, is that kind of the lowest hanging fruit item number one that the no, that's a pretty big priority. Go to? That's a pretty big priority. Yeah. Are there other priorities you can speak to of like if this was to be generated, the the types of things that um uh, could be done, you know, you know, dream scenario, you know, this all passes, yeah. what could be done? Yeah. Well, so certainly the the economic impact, the footprint is is certainly a big piece of it. Um, you know, they're called research and promotion programs for a reason, because essentially the law only allows you to do research and promotion. So you can't do lobbying. You can't contribute to political cam campaigns. You can't, you know, sell things like you, you're, you're really, they're designed to do research and promotion. So under those two umbrellas, the sky is the limit. Um, off the top of my head, a few top priorities would be one, economic impact, uh, two, ecosystem services. You know, people don't think about the, the benefit you freely gain from all this national capital sitting out there. You know, when you drive through a subdivision, you might see somebody's water running and you say, man, look at the waste of that water. Um, and there's just no thought given to, but yeah, what do I get for that water, <laughs> you know? What are the benefits that are produced by that being a lawn instead of concrete? And there's some data out there to show that, which we could do a whole other podcast on environmental benefits of landscapes and lawns. Um, but that's a target area that needs to be worked on. Um, marketing, you know, when Aaron Rodgers went down with his knee injury a few weeks ago, uh, there's an opportunity for sod farmers all over the country and for athletic field managers all over the country to, to show, hey, natural grass is a safer choice. There are benefits. Let's get our school systems going back to natural grass. You know, that you could do a nationwide marketing campaign on the benefits of natural grass from an athletic fields perspective. Um, you know, but we don't have the money to do that right now. You know, marketing, research, understanding consumers. You know, I've got a little bit of data on this, but when you look, at what causes consumers to make purchasing decisions. It's pretty intriguing. And in our industry, uh, in agriculture in general, sustainability is increasingly becoming a major contributor to people's purchasing decisions. So if we're sitting on an industry that people don't think are sustainable, the consumer research shows that they will stop purchasing our product. But if we do research on environmental benefits and sustainability and best management practices to show them that our product is sustainable, 
uh, then we could actually protect and perhaps even grow our industry. Um, plastics, there is consumer research to show that people are now considering the impacts of plastics on the environment. So if you give that consumer a choice, I can purchase natural grass with no plastic, or I can put a synthetic turf front lawn in that's nothing but plastic, you know, we could shift consumers' perceptions to making sure they understand that we have, you know, a more sustainable product that has no plastic in it. So, you know, Jim, I could talk for an hour about that, but I mean, high level, anything to do marketing, lawns and sports fields and golf courses, any type of ecosystem services research, any type of consumer research that lets landscapers and sod producers understand the consumer better, um, what they're willing to pay for, you know, with rel relative to lawns and landscapes. I mean, you could, you could, the sky's the limit. I mean, really. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and you know, it's, it's just interesting. You know, yeah, listening to you talk about this, Becky and I, tomorrow, we're going to go participate in Knox County, uh, parks department meeting. And the, the topic of the discussion is going to be about irrigation, uh, improvements in one of our County park properties. And one of the things that we need to speak to is, you know, the County that we live in Knox County is becoming more urbanized, right? You have a hundred acre property and grassland, and there's a lot of benefits that come to that for every citizen in the County, um, from an environmental standpoint, everybody's affected by that. Whether they use the, the park or not, they're all going to be affected by having a hundred acre footprint uh, of turf grass in the middle of an urban county. And, you know, it's challenging to have these discussions about, you know, an infrastructure improvement or a capital improvement that confer those benefits without you know, a ton of real work to show really how A connects to B, right? We know that it does, but I don't know that we've really delved out exactly how that connection is made and why a investment and in infrastructure there would be helpful, but we know that it would. We just need the, the resources to do the work to show it really clearly to, uh, to an end user group. Yeah, and that's where checkoffs come into play. Like when you start to partner research and promotion, that's when you really start to have an impact. So if we had $15 million a year to spend on research and promotion, you go out, you fund universities to do the research on the benefits of natural grass in urban settings, you get that data, then you package it nicely into brochures and social media posts, uh, magazine ads, radio ads, you know, Google ads, whatever, you take that research, you package it, and then you go out and you market it. That's how you have an impact. So you do the work, then you tell the story. And right now there's just not really money to do either. Um, but if you had money to do both, you could change the perception that people have of the green industry. Um, and what's cool about it, I think, is, you know, we have a lot of lawn care folks that listen and landscapers that listen to this. And, you know, you might hear sod check off and just think, oh, well, that's not applicable to me. I'm not a sod farmer. But, you know, I look at that, Casey, and think, well, OK, if these sort of things can be can be demonstrated through research that would be supported by a sod check off. Well, you know, what if you're a lawn care operator and, you know, maybe you've lost some accounts during COVID? right? And business is a little slow. Well, if you have the ability to communicate to a homeowner, like an investment in your lawn, being a healthy growing lawn confers X, Y, and Z benefits, 
you know, there's a world out there where that sort of research endeavor helps a long care company maybe pick up more accounts and justify why the investment that a homeowner is making in a fertilizer program for their yard or or a weed control program for the yard or whatever um, is 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 a net positive, right? I, I think we could get to there if we had the the research report to do that. Yeah, and what what I like to say is what's good for people that grow grass is good for people whose industry depend on grass. You know, a, a research program and a promotion program that's good for our farmers that helps them sell more sod is good for people who manage that sod and install that sod. And inversely, if consumer perceptions are shifting away from lawns, well, what's bad for people who produce grass like our members is also bad for people that manage those lawns. You know, like you said, you're going to lose accounts. So, you know, it's all about, you know, this mentality that a rising tide raises all ships. Um, if we can get consumers to better understand the value of their managed lawn and landscape and their the value of their natural grass parks and sports fields, um, then, then it's a win-win. The community wins, the people who manage and whose jobs depend on that win, we win because we sell more product into that space. Um, you know, and it's just, a, it's, it's what we need to do to protect and to promote our industry. Yeah, and on the consumer perception front, I know Becky, you know, before you came to Tennessee this May, you know, you were at Texas A&M and I think you shared with me and I'm sure this group might be interested in learning about it. Uh, a case study, and it was, I think, in San Antonio, maybe, in Texas, about water use. I might have the town wrong, so. Um, oh, yeah. But, but water use with lawns versus taking the lawn out and putting it in zero scaping or whatever, and, and how the water use did or didn't change from that. Yeah, sure. So I think, and, and I think, um, you know, several of us have seen examples of this, particularly out West, where there's growing concerns around water use and water conservation. There's been a lot of very, like, I would describe it as well-meaning, but reactive policy, right, that seeks to um, remove or replace turf. And, and this has prompted a lot of questions around, like, is this appropriate? And do we understand the implications of, of changing this out, what the ecosystem service trade-offs are of introducing other things? And the San Antonio water system a few years ago, they uh, they had a campaign where they incentivized people replacing turf grass with xeriscape plants or native and adapted plants. And they evaluated water use over the course of about a year. And it, it was a lesson learned for them, you know, and, and I actually heard the story from them directly that um, over the course of that year, uh, lawns that had converted away from turf had a, a zero water savings. There was no difference in the amount of water that was used because a lot of it comes back to just education, right? And it comes back to understanding what these plants need and talking to people about um, the value of the different plant materials that they're introducing and, and what's needed to maintain them and can, to optimize the benefits that those plant materials offer. So, I mean, for me, I think it just like kind of points to the fact that there's a lot we still don't understand. And I think, you know, increasingly we're seeing that in some cases, the policy or cultural interests are kind of getting ahead of the science. And like to Casey's point, like there's a lot that we don't have data for, and we need to develop that data um, so that we can one, protect our industry and two, ensure that the decisions that are being made um, at scale reflect science and are science-based. 
and, and are not necessarily just emotional or in response to what's, what's interesting or trending in the moment. Right. So, um, so Casey, I, I had a question, I guess, as we've been like sitting here talking, um, I feel like we've been discussing something that's very kind of conceptual. Like I think several of us as researchers are really comfortable in that space. Like we're going to do research and we're going to find some things and there's benefits. But if I'm a landscaper, like what are the tangible deliverables of this look like and how do I interact with them? Are we talking about publications? Are we talking about like what am I going to be able to get my hands on as a result of this work that I can then use in my day-to-day -day job? Um, I'd say marketing content is one of the objectives of this program. So if you could go to a website, like we have a website called thelawninstitute.org, but if you woke up one day and thelawninstitute.org was, you know, where there was another version of that related to the checkoff, um, you know, you could download social media tweets that says, hey, did you know that a 5,000 square foot long produced enough oxygen for 34 people? And then you put that on your social media page and you tweet that out or share that with your customers. Uh, maybe it's video content that we talk about. You know, we get a researcher in front of an urban suburban city and we say, hey, did you know that 81% of the water that is captured in this city is captured by lawns? hey, let's expand lawns. Let's not decrease lawns. You know, marketing content is something that we need. We need research to figure out what the story is to tell. And then you need marketing content to tell the story. Um, and I'll give you a good for instance. There's a, there's a paper published a few years ago, and I'm looking at it right now. And they essentially looked at all the different ecosystem services of a city they segmented it into forest, urban forests, grasslands, like parks and cemeteries, golf courses, and then residential lots, which is what the bulk of us think about with cities is, you know, picture any subdivision with 300 homes in it. Um, and what they found was 89% of the carbon that was captured in that city was captured by grasses. And 88% of the water that was regulated was regulated by lawn grasses. And 81% of runoff that was regulated was regulated by lawn grasses. So it's a good example. We've got good data that we're sitting on right now, but there's no way a landscaper is going to take this research paper and give it to a customer, expect them to read it. But if we had the money to work with a national marketing firm or a public relations group to capitalize on this data, package it, and now instead of just me going out there as one person you know, telling the story, we've got hundreds of thousands of landscapers all over the country resharing social media posts with the same story, which is here's the benefits that research is showing. This is why you should consider resodding your lawn with Bermuda grass if it's fescue. You know, if that's an objective of a landscaper in Middle Tennessee to say, man, if I could get every customer in my neighborhood to switch from fescue to Bermuda, you know, here's the type of water we could save or here's the benefits of that, like you might end up with some marketing content to do that. Um, or inversely, if everybody that was growing tall fescue said, well, hey, I want some marketing content to show that fescue is the better choice, create it and then go out and sod lawns and tall fescue. So tangible marketing content that's easily accessed and distributable by landscapers nationwide and golf courses nationwide 
based on research that is up to date and funded and done correctly. I mean, it really could be a really, it could be a difference maker for the industry. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Jim. I was just going to say, we, we've talked a lot today about like how to convey some of this to customers, but I think Jim, maybe you made one point earlier and I think it's worth reiterating that like there are other audiences that we have to kind of uh, communicate about our industry with, right? Particularly if I'm, if I'm managing school grounds or if I'm managing public uh, park spaces, right? I have um, certain policymakers, or I have certain other uh, public figures that I may really need to be able to share this information with. And right now it's hard for us to do that. And like, Casey, would you say that the absence of some of this data or the lack of organization around it has, has potentially kind of undermined other opportunities for our industry as it relates to being involved in policy discussions and, and other things at, at the bigger picture? But yeah, I mean, a, a common call I get, and I actually got it last week for a meeting today. Um, a common call I get is from uh, a parent who says, hey, my school district is getting ready to vote on a $60 million bond package to make all of our schools plastic turf. Do you have any information you can share with me about grass ball fields that I can take to this city council meeting tonight and try to change their mind? And the answer is no, we don't, <laughs> you know, we've got the story, but I don't have um, countless brochures and fact sheets and things that someone can easily print and take into their community and help impact those decisions. Um, we need that as an industry. Like we need you as a parent going to your local school board and saying, before you get rid of these grass ball fields or before you approve this new subdivision and make it illegal for them to have lawns, which does happen, or have lawns that are bigger than, you know, X amount of square feet. Before you implement this policy that impacts my community, you need to understand the benefits of this product. And if you remember earlier, I said that checkoffs can't lobby, that is true. That's something the checkoff could not do. I could not myself as an employee of the checkoff, if I were, go to that community and do that. But we can produce the research and the content, make it publicly available, and then you can go do that. And that's what really needs to have happen is before people make these decisions on how to impact their communities with building codes um, or public school funds, they need that information in a way that is easily digestible. And, and right now there's just no money to do that. And I think anybody who works in extension would welcome the opportunity to have easily digestible research-based information to help have those conversations. Because okay. like you said, it's there's there's bits and pieces out there that, that are well done, but but they're scarce and scattered. Like they're not really organized. Um and put together in a way where where everything is kind of centrally linked, uh, you know, on message, if you will. Correct. Yeah. And, you know, you guys in Tennessee, let's say y'all do the research, but I would venture to guess that the University of Tennessee is not going to spend $50,000 in Facebook and Google and radio ads to tell the story, you know, but if the Tennessee sod producers uh, decided, you know what, 
we're going to take some of these checkoff dollars and we're going to spend $50,000 spreading this message. They can do that because that's what they do with checkoff dollars is promote it. Um, so, you know, they would be, the checkoff would be burdened with, with creating the content. You know, y'all might do the research, but the checkoff creates the content. The checkoff promotes the content. And then y'all piggyback right on that. So if John and Jim are, uh, if, if one of y'all gets called to a meeting, well, then you go to that website now and download this content and, and present it. And there's no law that prevents you from doing that. It's just the checkoff can't do that, you know, but the checkoff can produce the content that allows you to go do that. Are we ever going to get to the point, Casey, where I turn on my TV at 105 Eastern on a Sunday, there's an opening kickoff, they cut the commercial and I see a sawed ad because that'd be pretty cool. That would be pretty cool. Um I, and, and hypothetically, yes, you could do that. I, I don't know that we you would do that, but yes, you could do that. I mean, I got to think, you know, I, you know, I joke about that, but that comes from seeing the beef is what for dinner ads and, and the incredible oh, yeah. egg and got milk and all that. I mean, everybody remembers the milk ads when we were kids. Yeah. I got to think for size of industry and size of checkoff like at least at the outset it probably won't be as big as as beef or or dairy or whatnot but who knows maybe it could eventually grow into that one day yeah you never know um you know beef dairy i mean the the beef program 280 million dollars no, that's dairy i mean the dairy the dairy checkoff is you know two three hundred million dollars a year um, I'm looking at the numbers here, the fluid milk, um, millions of, I don't know, but sod checkoff, we're, we're guessing is probably going to be more along the lines of, you know, we've estimated in that industry analysis about $14 million a year. You know, could they afford national ad space? Uh, perhaps. But, you know, the other thing you can do with these dollars is you leverage it with other industries. So the checkoff might say, well, hey, I don't have $10 million to go run this ad. But if I take a million and I ask a mowing company for $2 million and, uh, you know, the NFL Players Association for $3 million, and you go there and you leverage those dollars and you say, hey, well, I'm going to pitch in this, y'all pitch in that because we all benefit, uh, then, yeah, you could potentially raise that kind of money through, you know, um, some type of matching system we had our one of our extension agents comment that they should have aaron Rodgers be the spokesperson when the ad comes out yeah well and we certainly like aaron Rodgers has been pretty vocal about grass fields as many of y'all know um but i mean god if i were to email aaron Rodgers today and say hey what would it cost for you to do that i mean i can't afford that at tpi um i, I doubt you know a landscape professional association could afford it but I don't think UT Extension could afford it either. So you're not alone. Hey, yeah. hey, Casey, if, if cotton is the fabric of our lives, what is turf? So that's their tagline. I mean, the tagline that we've got right now with the checkoff is bring grass to life. You know, it works on several levels. Obviously, sod producers, seed producers, we physically bring grass to life when we plant it. Um, landscapers golf course superintendents, athletic field managers, when y'all buy the product and you bring it to your community, you are bringing that grass to your life. Um, you know, like you're transporting it from the farm to your community, you're bringing it to your life. And then, 
you know, we also think the checkoff could bring the industry to life, you know, so it works on a few levels. Um, that doesn't mean that somebody down the road might not have a better tagline they come up with, but uh, that's what we have right now. Bring grass to life because we do think a checkoff could quite literally bring our industry to life with some of this positive research and messaging that we know we need. I like it. Bring grass to life. That's I'll, I'll remember that one. Um, before I forget, because I've forgotten before and then gotten a hundred emails about this afterwards. Uh, on the screen is our. Um, this is for golf course superintendents only. This has nothing to do with pesticide credits. But if you are a golf course superintendent and you are listening to this or watching this, uh, this is your approval code right here for uh, continuing education CEUs to maintain your certified golf course superintendent status. Uh, we were awarded 0.1 CEUs for today's session. If you are watching this as an archived uh, archived view on YouTube uh, or listening to this uh, on our Apple podcast, you want to make sure that when you log this into the Golf Course Superintendents Association of America website, you put today's event date of October 3rd. Again, that's for golf course superintendents only, and it has nothing to do with uh, pesticide credits of any kind. So Casey, we're, we're coming to the end of the end of our hour here. And I know many folks want to hop off and get to lunch, I guess, you know, before we go any, any kind of, you know, when I was a kid, I used to watch this show on Sunday mornings on ESPN called the sports reporters. And they'd have all these different kind of beat writers that follow different teams nationally. Like Mike Lupica was on it forever. And Mitch album was on it forever. And at the end of the show, uh, the host, Dick Schaap, would uh, ask each 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 uh, guest if they had any parting shots. So do you have any, any parting shots? Anything you want to leave with the group before we sign off for the rest of the afternoon? Uh, I would just say we're a long way from having a checkoff. So nobody go out and celebrate or panic. <laughs> you know, um, we, got a, we got a ways to go. We are going to vote on it soon. And um if you're if you're if you want to know more, reach out to us and, and we'll be happy to share more. Awesome. And the the website was the lawninstitute.org. Is that right? No, that's sodcheckoff.org. Sodcheckoff.org. I will uh I'm gonna put this in our chat right now. So every attendee um who is with us today will have it. Sodcheckoff.org. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the time, Casey. Thanks again for, for joining us on Turf Tuesdays. This is kind of the end of our uh, our Turf Tuesdays year. Uh, it's been a pleasure to be part of these uh, series in 2023, and we will be back in 2024 uh, as a monthly offering to have pesticide credits available for those in Tennessee, uh, as well as surrounding states. So if you have any ideas for, for topics or speakers for 2024, please reach out to myself or any of my colleagues here at UT uh, and bring those forward because we're always looking for uh, topics and guests to kind of keep these sessions fresh and interesting and uh, make them be something that you want to tune back into uh, each month. So with that, I wish you uh, a good rest of your day and we will see you all next year.